Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2009, an 18-year-old Carlos Semenya had just won gold. It was in the 800 meters at the World Championships in Berlin. But in the run-up to her race, the IAAF, that's the championship's ruling body, called in Semenya for a gender verification test. This is the General Secretary of the IAAF, Pierre Weiss, talking about Costa in an interview. I am not a doctor. I am not a specialist of genetic. There is doubt about the fact that this person is a lady, is a woman. After the race, these results were leaked to the media. And Semenya read the news along with the rest of the world. The report said that although she had a vagina, she didn't have a uterus or fallopian tubes, and that undescended testicles were the source of her higher-than-average levels of testosterone. The IAAF said this threw her eligibility to compete into question. There was a huge backlash as a result, and it started this long campaign for Caster in her fight against discrimination. Now, 14 years later, she's ready to talk about what happened to her. After having some of the most private parts of her life publicized and scrutinized, she wants to tell it in her own words. She's just released her book, The Race to Be Myself, and it tells the story of Caster Semenya's life so far. It explores bigger issues in society, identity, sexuality, gender, and race, and how to hold on to your sense of self when it feels like everyone around you is trying to prove otherwise. So many others have weighed in on her position in athletics, but now we're going to hear it in Costa's own words. I'll be speaking to Emma Middleton. She's a journalist at the News Movement, and she spoke to Costa on her journey so far. That's coming up. I'm Mary Manderfield, and this is Noted. If you know that you're a woman, you're a woman. I am a woman with differences. I'm born with, you know, high testosterone level. I'm born with no uterus. No one should come and make a mock. I am not going to allow the noise, you know, determine my future. I know that I'm ready to talk, which is now. That's Semenya. We're going to hear more from her throughout this episode. But first, let's meet Emma. Emma, welcome to Noted. Now, look, before we get into some of these bigger questions that Costa raises throughout her book, maybe we can go back to the beginning. Can you tell me how this all started? Yeah, hey, Mary, and thanks for having me. So the first time lots of people would have heard about Caster's story would have probably been in 2009, which was the 
Berlin World Championships, but I can certainly paint a little bit more of a picture before we got to that point in 2009. So for context, Caster spent most of her childhood growing up in a South African village with her parents and siblings. And the book, which I've been through with a fine uh, tooth comb, gives little anecdotes about growing up with people sort of questioning whether she was a boy, but she gives off this impression that she didn't really care about it because obviously she knew she was a girl and she'd had this incredibly successful career as a junior runner but it was only when she was about to compete on an international stage at a senior level for South Africa that things would take a little bit more of a turn and the day before she was to leave for the Berlin World Championships Athletics South Africa caught her in for her first what they call gender verification tests and she didn't get the results of this test and she got on the plane she went to Berlin and, you know, fast forward all the way through the heat semi-finals, made it to the finals. And the day before, on her rest day, they called her in for a second gender verification test, which she describes in the book as invasive and humiliating. And it was really after Caster became the 800 meter World Championship, did this massive crescendo happen where the world media, the world athletics, everyone was suddenly talking about her gender there were headlines like South Africa's golden girl, maybe a boy, prove this is not a boy. And what was particularly disturbing, I guess, was that she was just 18 when this was all happening. But also that Castor found out that she didn't have a uterus, that she had internal testes, that she had elevated testosterone all through the media at the same time the rest of the world did. So gender verification tests for athletes, I'm assuming this isn't something that every athlete goes through before they compete. Was this the first time something like this was done so like last minute? There's certainly been a lot of talk around gender testing um, prior to Castor and Castor certainly isn't the only case. And I think the trend has been there's been several anonymous cases of athletes who are suspected to have had gender verification testing um, from developing countries, um, but we obviously we don't know their names, and I guess that's for various reasons. We do know that back in 2001, there was a tragic case of a young Indian athlete um, and swimmer who took her own life, and that was linked to the public commentary around a supposed failed gender verification test. There's one name in the book that Casta does keep checking, though, and that's the Indian runner Duty Chand, who, like Casta, was 18 when she was flagged for a gender verification test. And the reason why Duty's case became so important was because Duty took the IAAF to court over their regulations around testosterone levels. So what happened to Duty's case would ultimately affect whether Casta could run without taking drugs to lower her testosterone levels. And as it stands, Duty did win that case, and that meant for a period of time, Castor could stop taking those drugs to lower her testosterone. It's quite interesting. I guess that's a name we didn't hear as much about. Before we get into the debate that's gone on around Castor throughout all these years happening in the sporting world and in the media as well. Can we talk about what it is that actually makes Caster different to some of her peers? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we put this in Caster's own words because for so often the narrative around her gender has sort of been wrestled away from her. So really early on in the book, she says, and this is quote unquote, on the outside, I'm a female, I have a vagina, but I did not have a uterus. 
And then she goes on to say that she doesn't have periods, her body produces an elevated amount of testosterone and that she has undescended testicles. I mean, just to clarify, testosterone is a hormone that both men and women produce, but men just produce much more of it. And World Athletics actually told the news movement they have over a decade of research from athletes with what they call differences in sexual development. Another term for it is that is DSD athletes that show that the high testosterone levels do provide an unfair advantage in the female category. And that's to do with things like testosterone being linked to increased muscle mass, increased strength. And they say they have the research to back it up that certain athletes perhaps shouldn't be competing in that female category. But it's also worth noting that Cassa says these claims against uh, DSD athletes or athletes with differences in sexual development are not backed up by valid research. And this is something that you actually brought up with her when you interviewed her. I mean, that must have been huge. Yeah, absolutely. And she actually had a message for those within the sporting world who have tried to rule her out of the sport. I think uh, people judge women's sports based on bodies. And why it disappoints me is that it's men who does that, you understand? And for an example, if, if you look into my situation now against well other ticks, uh, there's a study that has been told that uh, they have 10 years study. They've misled us. It is called flawless, you know, uh, information where there are no proof that women with DSD have, you know, advantage, you know, over, you know, other women that does not have that condition. And on top of that, I have never seen anyone who has studied a sports physiology and come tell me that they have a subject you know, a DSD women uh, being tested based on sports, taking them to the lab, making sure that they check speed endurance, you know, muscular strength, muscular endurance, you understand? Make them do all those tests and say, this is the proof. If IAAF and World Athletics can come up with that and say, this is a subject, this is a woman with DSD who is a Olympic champion, who has won multiple, you know, title, to say, we have done the test, this is the proof. For me, I'll respect that. But if they keep on talking about their nonsense of the research that does not exist, you know, they've published false, you know, testimony. So the study that Castor is referencing in that clip is the research done by World Athletics. And they say they've got the evidence and they've done the research that athletes with difference in sexual development have a, what they call a physical advantage in the female category. And it's actually on the basis of that very research that this year, back in March, World Athletics updated their regulations so that athletes with a certain level of testosterone can't compete in any track distance. So before these regulations only applied to track events between 400 metres to a mile. So that's obviously the World Athletics position. And there are also many athletes too that have expressed their concerns about Semenya competing. So this is a bit of an interview that I found of one of Caster's competitors in the 800 metres, GB's Lindsay Sharp, after Caster won gold at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Well, Lindsay, I suppose you can't do much more than set a personal best in an Olympic final. You gave it your all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'll have to watch it back. I feel a bit disappointed because, like, I had a lot left at the end, but I don't know whether that means I ran it right or whether I had too much left, but I was conscious of going off too fast and, like, I can't keep up with what's going on at the front, and I know that, so 
just had to sort of run my own race and I did come through strong at the end and caught a few people so that was good but I don't know we'll see I'll see what coach says you know you're chasing down somebody like Castor Semenya who's you know light years ahead it seems yeah I mean I've tried to avoid this all year and um you can see like how emotional it was like between me and Melissa and Joanna at the end and we know how each other feel but it's out with our control and very much relying on the people at the top sorting it out and like I think the public can see as well sorry like just how how difficult it is um what's the change of rule but all we can do is give it our best You can definitely hear in her voice, like, she's very emotional. And we're talking about people competing at the very top level. Like, this is Olympics. People dedicate so much of their life to it. Some people think she has an unfair advantage against her competitors. And that's what the problem is. This is a conversation that cuts the hearts of people that have given up their life to be the best and compete at the Olympics. But it's it's a conversation about that idea of fair competition in sport and not just the kind of protection of the female category, even though that's such a big element of it and I mean Lindsay's not the only one to have sort of raised her concerns about this I mean another really high profile example which I'm sure many of our listeners would have heard of is um, the British long distance runner Paula Radcliffe who actually said in an interview back in 2019 that it would be the death of women's sport if there weren't tougher regulations around testosterone I mean she was kind of making that reference in the sense that if things weren't made tougher it could give transgender athletes an opening to compete in the female category, even though obviously we can't conflate Caster's case and DSD athletes to the transgender case. It's obviously just a concern about who should be allowed to compete in that female track event. It also just leaves a big grey area for DSD athletes. But it's like, so where where do they go? There's still people that are training and dedicating their lives to it. So, you know, what actually, what's the answer? What's the solution? So the option that World Athletics gave uh, DSD athletes, again, in their regulations update this year, was that they'd have to lower their testosterone level to a certain amount. And again, we don't need to get into sort of the numbers, but really it would obviously mean having to take drugs which would suppress that level. And Castor in the book is very descriptive about how ill she felt taking that pill for the time when those regulations were being enforced. And and again, it's not really an option for her because she knows that those pills certainly didn't sit well with her body. And therefore, even if she wanted to to reduce the levels of testosterone, she didn't really feel like she could because drugs just weren't an option anymore. So World Athletics are saying that she would need lower levels of testosterone to compete in the women's category. And the ways to do that are either to take these drugs, which she said really didn't sit right with her, or to have surgery. So it's huge compromises and huge sacrifices, like either way. Yeah, so I think that's just one challenge that Semenya raises, but there are plenty more in our conversation that she did bring up, particularly the kind of interplay between sexism and racism in athletics and how women's bodies and particularly non-white bodies are objectified in sport. Yeah, it sounds like there is so much to this. We'll hear more about that next. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so Emma, when you got the chance to speak to Caster, I know you touched on loads of different topics, but one of the things that came up was about the treatment that she experienced specifically as a black woman. Yes, there was one moment in the book that I particularly picked up on, and that was a phrase she'd used, the objectification of black women's bodies. So I just wanted to ask her to sort of explain and talk a little bit more about that, and here's what she had to say. If you look into our situation, it, it only affects brown-skinned colored people. You look into Africa, you look into um, Asian, you know, athletes. It's only them who have been scrutinized. They're only women that have been, you know, even brown-skinned colored people who are in America, if you look at Serena Williams, has been questioned, you understand? And it, it worries me because it only affects, you know, those kind of, you know, uh, people who are coming from certain, you know, continents. As their title says, World Athletics. Why, why you call it World Athletics if you're going to, you know, judge, you're going to discriminate people, you're going to segregate women, you know, against one another. You're going to just separate women and make a line, draw a line that if you're a different woman, you're not a woman. It's a racial issue, it's discriminatory, it needs to get into their head to say, you need to consider human rights. What pisses me off is it's, it's like, it's a man who divide women. A man are still going to tell you that now, it's very important for a certain you know, group of women to be satellite from sports. So obviously Casa covers a lot in that response, but I think the first point to make here is that taking race out of it, a lot of sportswomen do feel a certain pressure to look a certain way and a certain pressure when it comes to their bodies. I mean, there was some recent research that said that 72% of elite sportswomen feel judged on the way they look. So clearly it's something that kind of resonates with a lot of sportswomen. But then there kind of just comes this added layer and that's what a lot of people kind of call this intersection between race and gender. And that's when I guess things can become particularly hurtful and there have been plenty of cases that we've seen over the past how many years about black female athletes receiving such comments. I mean, one of the most high-profile names that we'll most likely all have heard of is Serena Williams. And she's received a lot of comments about her look, particularly those who call her, you know, manly and she's very muscly. There's also fellow US tennis player Coco Goff as well, who's kind of just making her mark on the tennis circuit at the moment. Who very recently tweeted about the death threats, racism and body shaming she deals with on a daily basis. And just to give another example, Simone Biles, um, a, an incredible um, US gymnast, she's also spoken on her Insta about how body shaming and trolling has affected her. It's crazy because it's these women that are obviously so hardworking and at the top of their game. And it's this thing of their body shape, their muscles, their looks are equating to people saying they're too manly or they're too strong or they're too built up, which is like, is that not the whole point of these sports? I think as well, you know, we've touched on unfair advantage and I know there's obviously that 
difference when we're talking about testosterone levels and people's anatomy, but surely all sport is about having an unfair advantage. That is why I am not running the 100 metres sprint because I don't have that same advantage that someone else does, whether it's their lean muscles, their height, metabolism, whatever it is. Sport is just having an unfair advantage, surely. Precisely. You can't eradicate all uh, sort of genetic advantages or, you know, advantages based on height, on, on our power and our strength that just comes with kind of what we're born with. And I guess that's the constant dilemma that sports face, really. It's how to make sport fair and enable fair competition, but also how to make it accessible for everyone. And also just to make sure that people don't feel kind of disenfranchised buy it or feel like their place isn't in sport because of who they are or their genetics. So yeah, it's a constant conversation that our whole idea of what makes fair competition. Um, and it's unfortunately, I don't think something that we're going to be able to solve rather than just come up with find solutions which can help the matter. Yeah, there's no clear cut solution. I feel like I'm figuring that out very, very quickly. So something else I know that you asked Carter about is her relationship with the trans community and transgender athletes. And I know that DSD athletes and transgender athletes are in two separate groups, but the World Athletics have actually banned both groups from competing in the female category. And the idea there is to protect the female category. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important distinction to make that the DSD athletes and transgender athletes aren't the same. And Castor was also quite keen to make sure that that's not conflated. I can't speak on behalf of, uh, you know, trans, you know, community. I sympathise with them. I have feelings for them. I don't have a problem with them competing, but it will be unfair for a woman with the DSD talking, you know, on behalf of a, a woman who is a transgender, you understand? More research needs to be done. And then obviously the trans, you know, family needs to come you know, on board to argue the matter, to make, you know, you know, each and every one understand, you know, the situation. But I, I love them, I support them in everything that they do. But when it comes to my situation, it's way irrelevant to mix it. It's so interesting and I feel like these are kind of conversations that go round a lot in media, even people that aren't really that invested or interested in sport and in athletics. It feels like so many people like will weigh in and have an opinion on it. And I think for that reason, I see why Caster really took her time to tell her story and tell it in her own words, because these are not easy issues to talk about especially if you're kind of at the center of all of this and quite like dangerous abuse and bullying and words as well coming her way. Acasta really has become this like focal point really for these kind of conversations which you know it must take a toll and I was really interested to hear kind of how she'd managed to stay so strong and resilient throughout the past you know almost 15 years really of being the spotlight and almost the figurehead of these conversations. What I can say to people who are trying to deny me you know, to run and be saying, you don't know what you're doing. You should not, you know, wasting your energy on trying to diminish people. You must not waste your energy on trying to destroy other people's dreams, destroy other people's lives. If you think by stopping me from running makes you happy, it gives you hell because you're not stopping me. Actually, you're giving me hope and power to change the world. 
you said, she has become this kind of spokesperson, but she's not the only person experiencing this. I guess it was just such a high profile case and has carried on being so for such a long time. And that is a strong message to her critics, but also, I guess, to other people who are, who are dealing with this and living with this. And a lot of those people are probably anonymous. We don't actually know who's undergoing the kind of gender verification tests and everything that comes with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why the book is also so powerful and will sort of strike a chord with so many people because Cass's story, again, it's not, uh, even though her case is sort of at one end of the extreme, it's certainly this questioning of identity and who you are. It's something that a lot of people can relate to. And I picked up in the book, she'd mentioned this particular phrase of psychological violence, which I just thought was so was so powerful, but also quite moving. And I wanted to ask her a little bit more about how she's managed to stay so mentally strong in the face of that violence. I mean, psychologically violent is more for being questioned who you are, being told that you're not enough. And then people go out there, scrutinize you, you know, judge you, you know. You know, it's all about the criticism, but even though, you know, people question you, First, you need to question yourself if you are enough for you. How did you do it, really? How did you kind of keep that sense of self, that really entire way through? I think it's uh, being selfish about yourself. It's about keeping yourself away from things that you cannot control. I always tell, you know, the young ones say, if something that, you know, comes in your way and then you cannot control it, you understand? What I've done is that I've eliminated the noise. I did mute you know, myself from everything. I took myself away from, you know, the world media, you know, the criticism. People, you do good, they will always talk. People, you do bad, they will always talk. So I'm not going to allow the noise, you know, determine my future. I can't even imagine, like, being at the centre of all that noise. So I think that's good advice, just muting it where you can, stepping away. The things that you can't control and yeah you have to protect your energy especially if you're competing and you're doing sports because you need to stay focused you need to have a bit of tunnel vision exactly and i think often that's what these olympians really have is that ability to just be so present in that moment and that's kind of one of the key factors of their success I know as a reporter and as an athlete yourself, you've been spending a lot of time looking into Semenya's story and meeting her as well. What has been the biggest takeaway for you? I think regardless of the fact whether you're a sportswoman or not at all, it's this idea about really taking the time to like understand who you are and embrace differences and and in Casta's case, she's just filled her life with people that kind of embrace and understand those differences too. And I think that's something that a lot of us can take away from that conversation. So lastly, I know there are still ongoing conversations with Casta's position in athletics. What is she up to now? Yeah, so she's spending a lot of her time focusing on coaching in South Africa and training upcoming athletes, which, you know, seems to bring her a lot of joy. And Casta also told me that she just wants to focus on continuing to advocate for what she feels is right. Emma, thank you so much for talking to me and sharing so much of your chat with Costa Semenya. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Mary. Costa's story goes back quite a few years now, but her experiences aren't that dissimilar to a lot of people today. It's 2023 and there's clearly a lot of debate still happening around the eligibility of different people competing in sports that they love. 
And whether you relate to some of what Cast has said, or maybe you just have something that you want to say about it, we've got a WhatsApp number and you can message anytime. The number is in the show description. I'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Noted. This is a podcast by The News Movement, produced by Persephonica. Persephonica. 